0: Hey, um, as Librarian of the Royal Irish Academy, I am absolutely delighted to welcome you today to our lunchtime lecture, Window on the Irish Soul, A Century of Irish Stamps, by Stephen Ferguson, the onpost Archivist and Museum Curator. So before I hand over to our speaker today, I would like to draw your attention to some housekeeping items. Um, just to say if the fire alarm sounds, there are two exits from the meeting room. The first is to your left here which is an exit onto Maldsworth Lane and the second exit is back through the library and hall to the front door exit. The gathering point is just outside the mansion house and academy staff will be on hand to guide and assist in the event of an emergency. Finally, can I just ask that you um, will turn off your mobile phones for the duration of the event. So Shortly after independence in 1922, the new government turned its attention to the design of stamps to replace the contemporary British stamps then in use. Over the years since then, Irish identity, culture and aspirations have been expressed through the medium of these miniature masterpieces, with postage stamps acting as our ambassadors throughout the world. Long before the advent of the postage stamp, however, the idea of a stamp as a form of tax was well known, and the Academy's library holds a remarkable album of 18th century revenue stamps which can, in a sense, be seen as the world's very first stamp album this album can be seen in a collaborative exhibition between on post and the royal Irish academy on ireland stamp and changing national image which is running until the 28th of july so since he joined the old department of posts and telegraphs stephen ferguson has worked in many areas of the post office and is now on Pust's company archivist and museum curator he has written and lectured widely on aspects of post office history and is the author of The Irish Post Box, The Irish Post Office and Illustrated History, and most recently, Best Book to Balladie, A Postal Tour of Ireland. So I'll now hold, hand over to Stephen Ferguson, who will speak on the topic of Window on the Irish Soul, A Century of Irish Stamps. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Barbara, and thank you to all of you for coming to what I hope will be a lecture that will have you at the end, going back to look for your old stamp albums and starting stamp collecting again. I am very grateful to Barbara and to her colleagues here in the Academy for agreeing to host our joint exhibition here to look at stamps in the broadest sense and also the identity of Ireland as portrayed through its stamps. So over the next little while, we'll examine a few stamps and we'll talk a little bit about what it is to be Irish and how we show ourselves through the medium of these little pieces of paper. I want to start with what Barbara referred to as this. It, it's really a, a lesser-known gem within the Academy's collection. And I looked at it some years ago, and more recently I've, I've looked at it again. And while it's not... an album of postage stamps as we understand them it is an album of revenue stamps and it has been described by various authorities as the first genuine collection of stamps in the broadest sense in the world. So this this particular album was put together in 1774 and it was formed by the receiver general of uh, revenue in Ireland a man called John Burke and the background is that while In England, there had been stamp duties from 1694. They didn't apply in Ireland until uh, legislation in 1773 set up a stamp office. And the following year, then, various stamp duties were imposed on transactions, instruments, leases, all sorts of things within Ireland. And John Burke, whose father was one of the commissioners uh, of revenue at the time, decided that um, he would put together a, an album of all of the little revenue stamps that applied at the time, and he, uh, he wrote a, a flattering introduction to his bosses, uh, quoting a little bit of Latin, saying that uh, he, he, it wasn't proper for a public servant to go on too long, and then went on for another, several lines after that, mm-hmm. saying why it was such a joy to work for these people. But in doing this, he performed a, a remarkable um, act for everybody who's interested in stamps in the broadest sense in revenue and postage. So, what I wanted to show you here is the front of the album, which you can see in the case over there. It's, um, it was donated as part of a larger donation of books by Lord Moyne of the Guinness Brewing family in 1934 when he donated books to the Academy. And in the back of the book, there is a bookseller's, a little cutting from a bookseller's catalogue. Uh, from that period. Now, we don't know exactly where it came from, but it looks like he acquired it at some stage in his um, book-collecting activities, and it ended up here in in the academy. So it it says that it's showing um, every stamp that must be applied to a piece of parchment or to a piece of vellum or to a skin uh, in accordance with the law. So this is what you see, this little bit of blue paper and they're quite hard to study and quite hard to see, but the principle was that if you had a lease or an indenture or something that was liable to stamp duty tax, this little piece of blue paper was stuck on the document, and then a little bit of metal made of uh, tin was put through holes in that little blue bit of paper and fastened on the back with another little bit of paper. And the reason for this was that people had nefariously been taking off revenue stamps from one document and sticking them onto other documents so that they could get away without having to pay the tax again. So this little thing of putting on the little metal foil or escutcheon, as it's called, stopped that. And these particular ones are actually a little bit later than the ones in the album. They're not from the Academy's collection here. But I wanted to show you because, again, from a cultural point of view, what you see is the winged harp, a mermaid design uh, with a woman at the front and the Irish harp behind. That's taken from the, the royal crest, or royal insignia of the time. And it's interesting from a postal point of view because the stamp collectors and postal historians amongst you will know that that same sort of figure was used as a mermaid postmark in the late 18th, early 19th century. So it's the harp symbol which is important for Irish cultural identity and it's been seen here used very early on in in the 18th century. This is another one again. um, This is an almanac stamp, not one of the little blue transparent ones but you'll you'll see often these on on old almanac books and on newspapers up until 1855 when, when the tax was abolished as a tax on knowledge at the time. Once again, a winged harp with Ireland. What's interesting in particular, is that while there were no Irish stamps until 1922, within the revenue and fiscal field, there were Irish stamps which carried the particular definition of Ireland. So Ireland's independent cultural identity was recognised on revenue stamps before it was on postage stamps. Moving on to stamps as a whole, um, I want you to think of these things as Signifiers of identity, as cultural um, signifiers, as well as little receipts for payment of postage. So, what I have here, which I, I hope you can see, is just a selection of these sort of things. So, the one, the little pink one at on the top, that that is a from the Germania series, for German stamps from 1900 onwards, used very frequently, and it shows a, a woman. She was an, a an actress at the time and she was apparently uh, specifically chosen by the Kaiser to appear on German stamps. This represents the idea of German unity at a time before the country was entirely united from a postal point of view because Bavaria and Württemberg still had their own stamps at that stage. The other, one, the other red one is a French stamp. What embodies the, the spirit of French liberté better than the head of Marianne? the young woman who appeared at barricades and who still appears on French stamps. The particular version of Marianne um, first, first appeared in during the war in 1940. And since then, a slightly different model has been used on French stamps, symbolising France. So when we see that, we know that it's a French stamp. The one at the bottom, of course, no prizes for anybody knowing who that is, Queen Victoria on a penny black. Some of you will have penny blacks, or maybe, more likely, perhaps, penny reds in your collections. But it's it's a classic icon of Britain, a young queen in profile, and that represents, for everybody, and up until today, it represents Britain, the only country in the world that doesn't have the name of the country on its stamps. It's enough to see the monarch, and you know who it is. So, for instance, last week, I saw my first stamp with the new king, King Charles. And that, that was really, it was quite a shock for me, because throughout my whole life, it's always been Queen Elizabeth. In slightly different guises, the earlier ones was a different portrait. Then we moved to the, the Arnold Machin portrait, and that was what represented, to me, England. It was the portrait of the Queen on her stamps. So now I must get used to King Charles III on any letters I get from England. This one down at the bottom, the little green one, a bit hard for you to see maybe, but... Um, this, this is something slightly different. It's not a king or a queen or, or a representation of a person. That is a Japanese stamp. And in the top, just around here, there is a chrysanthemum, the symbol of imperial Japan. And from the stamps of that period, it was the sign that this was Japan and it was the emperor's kingdom. So those appear on the early stamps of Japan. In the middle just a page from um, an ordinary stamp album of maybe 50 or 60 years ago, the sort of stamp album that I had when I started collecting stamps back then. And just for your information, I have set out a few postcards uh, with the help of my friends here at the Academy um, of stamps, and they're on your seats. These are for you to take away, but not just that. It's also for you to swap, because you may not like the one that's beside you, And you can start swapping your stamp postcards. The first fundamental of being a stamp collector, you've got to exchange what you have to get what you want. So that's the lesson for you there. In terms of our own identity, think of all the different ways of being Irish. Think of what it is to have a vision of Ireland. And I've just pulled out a few stamps here from from our collections, and look at the different representations of what it is to be Irish. So, in the top, again, maybe a little bit hard for you to see, but Dean Swift, the commemoration of Swift, and there we have a picture of Gulliver looking down on the little people of Lilliput. What was Swift's Swift's vision for Ireland? What was Swift like himself? Um, A person torn in some ways between Britain and Ireland with different backgrounds, different identities. Moving to Seamus Heaney, looking into the distance there, Seamus Heaney had another particular view of what it was to be Irish. And then a very nice photograph of one of our most famous sons whom we take to be one of our most famous sons, the President of America. And there he is talking to his cousin over a cup of tea. She has got out the family silver teapot and she is pouring the President of America a cup of tea down in Wexford. What does this say about us, about our connections with what up till now is still the most powerful country in the world, and also about the fact that the descendant of a poor Irish family in Wexford, ended up as President of America. On the bottom, a few different things. Um, Slightly harder to see these. The Battle of the Boyne. The Battle of the Boyne is there because I gave a little talk on another occasion, and one of the people in the audience was uh, a lady from the north. And she came to me afterwards and she said, I never knew that you had the Battle of the Boyne on your stamps down south, is what she said. And she was very pleased that the Battle of the Boyne was being represented on stamps. She had never expected that we would show the Boyne. That was actually in a pair. The other one showed the Siege of Limerick. So it's a balanced approach in our stamp-issuing policy. On the right-hand side, that's the emigration. That's emigration and the famine, two of the biggest disasters, ongoing disasters in Irish history, that have affected the way we see ourselves and our place in the world. It's too far away for you to see it, but... The actual soup kitchen depicted is a Quaker-run soup kitchen in Cork. The Quakers, again, if you delve deeper into the stamp, the Quakers were people who operated soup kitchens without insisting that people maybe change their religion in order to get some food. So each stamp tells a particular story at different levels. And you must look behind the original depiction of the portrait or the landscape or whatever it is to find out what's really going on. And in the middle, Eileen Gray, uh, super exhibition in the National Museum over the last number of years. But during her time, Eileen Gray wasn't really very well known. In this country, she was feted abroad as uh, a modernist architect, but in Ireland, not really known. And there are perhaps reasons for that in the background. The beginning of Irish stamps and British stamp goes back to a competition in 1839, when the post office decided to hold the competition for a new little label that people could put on their envelopes. Before that, if I sent you a letter, Barbara, you would have to pay for the privilege of opening it. The receiver paid postage. So the novel idea and the innovative idea was that the sender would pay. And the person behind this was able to reduce postage charges, which had been very high, down to the penny black, so-called one penny, and it became much cheaper People were more literate. Transport was easier. Railway systems were being introduced. It was much easier for the post office to grow and develop. And also within this um, competition, there was a competition for postal stationery. And the man I mentioned there, William Mulready, a County Clare-born artist, he got the job of designing a prepaid envelope so that there weren't just stamps, there were envelopes you could buy and he had a a beautiful design um, which was chosen by the post office and it's at the top here on the little black background and it shows in the middle where there is a postmark, it shows Britannia and she is sending forth angels throughout the world as messengers of her royalty, bringing letters to all the nations around the world. So you have Africans and Americans at different corners of the envelope. And this particular one is addressed, um, it was an, it's an early example of an envelope to Mrs. Lefroy in Leeson Street in Dublin. But the design was too clever, too artistic for people at the time. And all sorts of people in London began to parody it. And there were cartoons drawn like this one here which has little people riding, other people piggyback going off the world. There were other ones which pointed out that the angels in the Mulready envelope, one of them had lost his leg, and there were captions put in and said, oh, Fred, I've lost my leg. And this is what happened. Poor Mulready was lampooned and caricatured so much that the post office withdrew his envelope within a very short time, and the remaining stock was completely pulped. He was also subject to quite a lot of anti-Irish abuse at the time, because it was at that period of time when uh, not everybody was uh, too fond of us, uh, particularly in England. So he came in for a lot of abuse and went back to being a portrait painter, at which he was very successful, and left the postal side altogether. I've put in just a little stamp at the bottom because I wanted to resurrect his reputation a little bit. That is a painting by Mulready, and it's called The Sonnet or Love Letter, and it just shows uh, a, a girl reading a letter that's been sent to her that was on a stamp we issued some years ago. I mentioned the anti-Irish feeling in London, but there's also there's a lot um, of politics involved in stamps. And these are not proper stamps, they are propaganda labels, and they predate the issue of our own first set of stamps in 1922. The green one, is particularly interesting because that that is what's known as, as a Fenian stamp not a proper stamp it was produced by well as far as we know it was produced by a well-known forger uh, of Scottish background who worked in Boston and it was to coincide with the Fenian invasion of Canada in 1865 and 1866 and look again at the stamp it is that one is green the central motif is a harp surrounded by shamrocks, and on the top, Republica Hiberniae, Republic of Ireland. We weren't a republic, it was done as a propaganda piece. And you can still buy these. There have been uh, several um, further forgeries of the originals, and you, you need your eyes open to see which is a forgery and which is an original. But as a representation of Irish identity, before we were ever independent, it's an interesting little piece of what we call Cinderella philately, odds and ends of things like that. The other ones are political labels from the early 20th century. The slightly unclear ones in the background, the lady playing harp, that's a Sinn Féin propaganda label from 1908. And the one at the bottom, you will recognize the stern visage of Sir Edward Carson, who is saying, we will not have home rule. So those were labels issued by the unionist side of the political argument within Ireland. The post office accepted these for a while and then put its foot down and said, we're not having any more of these silly labels on the front of our envelopes. You can stick them on the back, but it's an infringement under the 1908 Postal Act if you put anything other than proper stamps on the front because it will slow down delivery. And it it, it always said in in, in post office um, rules, it will embarrass postal workers. We're a very easily embarrassed lot of people, I'm afraid. (laughs) Uh, But that, that, that was the regulation at the time. Eventually, we come to independence, 1922, and the gentleman there with a a, a slightly quiet smile uh, looking out at you is the Cork born J.J. Walsh. He was the first Postmaster General of Ireland. And he had been a postal clerk, post office clerk in Cork, but his political opinions did not sit easily with his responsibility to His Majesty at the time. And himself and the post office part of company. Uh, in Cork and he left but he came back with a vengeance as the postmaster general in 1922 and he had um, very clear ideas on stamps and he was very keen that as soon as possible there would be Irish stamps issued to to mark our independence Um, he, he wrote in the Guardian in March 1922 and he said that Stamps are one of the symbols of nationhood. And now, he says, we have our own government, and with it we have at last secured international recognition. So he saw the stamp as a vehicle for national and cultural identity. And very soon after he came into office in in, uh, April 1922... He had this advertisement inserted in the papers at the time, an advertisement for um, a competition to come up with new designs for Irish stamps. They were to be of symbolical character and they were not to have any personal representation on them. And the successful designs, he said, would would win 25 pounds, quite a lot at the time. So that, that was the competition that appeared in the papers. But in the meanwhile, he knew it would take a while for these stamps to be produced, and he went to London with uh, other post office representatives, and he met the British post office people, and he asked them if he could overprint existing George V stamps in Irish to serve as a temporary measure until Irish stamps themselves were produced. The British authorities were uh, very compliant and, and agreed to this. Um, there was a little bit of tension between Walsh and the head of the post office in England, Sir Evelyn Murray. And I have a little diary in the post office of a record of the meeting where the Irish uh, secretary records that Sir Evelyn was rather hoity toity in his attitude. So there was a little bit of tension, but otherwise they were very cooperative. And the Irish delegation came back on the mailboat with £500,000 worth of stamp stock in their suitcases. They were met with the military guard when they got back into Dublin, and the stamps were taken to Alborough House, which was the Post Office Stores uh, section at the time. So these stamps, with the permission of the British Post Office, were overprinted in Irish. So you can see there, Realtus, Shalladogneheron, Provisional Government of Ireland. We weren't a fully-fledged government at that stage yet, we were provisional, and the contract for printing these was given to two Dublin firms. It was split between the firm of Alexander Tom and Company of Tom's Directory, uh, some of you will know it, um, which had printed material for the post office since the early 19th century, but had no experience in printing stamps, and the firm of Dollard. Now, you'll know along the quays, there is now a shop, restaurant, food place, called Dollard and it is in the, the premises that were Dollard's printing house. So those two firms were given the contract and very quickly managed to put the overprints on it. Um, for, for stamp collectors, the initial distinction that you have to make between the two printings is in the date. You see that the date on the, the, date on the Tom one is a very bold black 1922. The date on the, the Dollard one, the Tom one there, the Dollard one is on the red it's in a, a more cursive, um, italic-type script. There are lots of other little distinctions which you can get into, but th- those are the two indicating which firm had printed those. So there was there was great interest in these stamps. Um, everybody was very pleased that we were um, a new nation, we were showing ourselves on the uh, world stage, and people were keen to start collecting our stamps. So this is a little advertisement taken from uh, a well-known um, stamp dealer at the time, Robson Lowe, uh, who maintained a, a lifelong interest in Irish stamps and actually served on some of our design committees much later on. That's, that's his estimate of what various stamps are worth and what he's prepared to sell them. And in the background, that's a little manuscripts catalogue put together by a man called Meredith in London, and he has written out in, by hand, he was not much more than a schoolboy at the time, um, the differences in types of stamps and how much they cost and he, he revised this periodically over the next few months, um, as there was great demand for stamps at the time. So throughout the world, people, people were keen to have Irish stamps. But back to the competition. So allowing a little bit of time, the entries began to come in. And there were about 800 entries. Huge interest in this. 800 entries of varying standards of artistic uh, excellence, we shall say. Um, this, this is a, a particularly fine one. Uh, the original is in one of the cases over there. So this is very good because it was printed by the firm of Dollard. It, it's a printing essay, really. It, it's not a proper stamp, but it's an indication of what they could do. The original design, showing the woman blowing the trumpet with the harp beside her, again, look at the symbolism that is there for Ireland. Serestote heron on the top, two pence. For the denomination, that was all designed by a man called Walter Till, who was a graphic artist, well known at the time, had done a lot of work on things like railway posters for the Great Southern and other railway companies, and the, the the stamp is the actual printing attempt at what it's going to look at. So that that didn't become one of our official stamps, but that's that's one of the proofs from one of the design entries that went in. This one I have put in um, in homage to the Academy here in particular because Macalester, Stuart McAllister was President of the Royal Irish Academy and he was Professor of Celtic Archaeology in UCD. I don't know whether he collected stamps or not, but he was certainly very keen to submit his um, artistic attempts for stamps. And again, in one of the cases, I, I have his original um, design. So this one, this one would have been ruled out immediately because it has a personal representation on it. So what McAllister has rather cleverly done, perhaps, is he has cut out the head of King George V from an ordinary penny stamp at the time, and he has stuck it in facing the tomb effigy of Henry II, taken from Fontainebleau. And his idea behind this is clever. He wanted to show the beginning and the end of British rule in Ireland... So he's taken Henry II and he's cut out George V and said, now, that's it, that's the time when uh, England was in charge of Ireland and we're finished with it. He had some other nice designs. There's a nice one of a Viking ship, which is perhaps a more successful design. And there's also a very nice one um, for maybe the Penny or Tuppence um, denomination that he had, which shows an Irish elk um, sort of leaping out at you almost from, from the little picture. And it reminds me of... If you go into the Natural History Museum up the road a little bit and you go in, the first thing you see is these huge antlers greeting you as you go into the Natural History Museum. So he knew his stuff, but his designs were not not selected. Another couple of unsuccessful entries. The man in the middle you will discern as Michael Collins with a moustache. Now, he didn't always have a moustache, but this particular representation shows him with a moustache and the trademark at the time. Again, ruled out because it's a personal representation of somebody. Now, whoever sent that in, I don't know who sent this particular design in, possibly thought, if I send in Collins, they're bound to select it because he's the man and they'll they'll give me the £25, but no, it was ruled out of order. The other two are quite nice designs as well, but again, look at the symbolism. Harps at the top, harp over here, a round tower, that's from a lady in Waterford, um, Elizabeth Whitty, I think her name was. Um, so I I have a selection of these I don't have anything like the 800 I only have a small number that are left within our own archives most of the material was returned to the people who sent them in um, and only a a small number was retained in the post office but I think a a considerable number were exhibited at the time in the RDS and there may be there there may be more information to be found out from that source in, in time but Now we come to the ones that were actually successful. So you will remember, many of you, this Tupany Green stamp on the left, the map of Ireland Tupany Green, because it was with us for nearly 50 years, which makes it one of the longest-running permanent definitive series in the world. And look again at what it shows. The message is very simple. It's a map of Ireland. It's a map of Ireland without a border, Again, something that caused some uh, consternation at the time. Though technically I think it was correct because actually Northern Ireland didn't opt out until two days after the issue of this stamp, which was the 6th of December. Um, So I I think the artist is technically correct. It's a man called James Ingram from Glasnevin who designed that. It's green, of course. Look at the shamrocks up on the top and little sort of interlacy Celtic-type weaving at the edge. But the stamp beside it I have put up because... This appeared, this is a a stamp from Chile from 1911. And the man on it is called Pedro de Valdivia. And Pedro was one of the conquistadors who conquered South America. So he was involved in the conquest of Chile. And you may ask, why have I put that up? I've put it up because I have, I did have in my pocket, the die of this particular stamp, which you won't be able to see, but this is the original die for that particular stamp. And it was used by the Dollard Printing Company in order to produce samples. And they used they used the Chilean stamp as their sample. Which is odd, because here we are expressing our independence. And what do we use? The stamp of a conquistador who's been subjecting the peoples of South America to all sorts of trouble. It's it's just an interesting by the by little fact and it, it was it was a printing sample but there are people who will say that they can see similarities between this design and the map of Ireland design in the general format and layout but another curiosity the Tupany one was not that particular map of Ireland one was not the original one that was supposed to come out that was a different stamp which I will show you in a minute um, but because of technical problems at the time, that was the one that came out, the Map of Ireland stamp. Another one was the Cross of Kong, um, or Celtic Cross stamp here um, on in the blue. And the stamp beside it is, again, not a proper official stamp. That's another Sinn Féin propaganda label from back in 1907, 1908. And it was designed by the same lady, Lily Williams, who was uh, a well-known... uh, portraitist at the time. She was particularly friendly with Arthur Griffith, who was president of the Doyle, but who was also a printer, and he had asked her when he was involved in Sinn Féin to do some propaganda labels. And it was at his request that she submitted or modified her design for this Cross of Kong design, and that was one of the ones chosen then as as a stamp um, for the new definitive set. Definitive's are the ones that we use every day. Commemoratives are the special stamps that we have for particular occasions. These are the other two that, again, will be familiar to people who remember the old-style stamps. The uh, Clive Solish, representing Rebirth and Resurgence, was designed by a man called J.J. O'Reilly. And this one, slightly cluttered, is the Arms of Ireland. Now, that was actually supposed to be the first stamp issued rather than the Map of Ireland one. Um, it's designed by a lady called Millicent Gerling, who was only 21 at the time. But there were, it, was, it was technically a little bit difficult to produce that in the time available, and they wanted a stamp out on the 6th of December 1922 because that was the first anniversary of the signing of the uh, Independence Treaty. So there, there was a political reason again for getting that stamp out. So only one stamp was issued in 1922, the rest are this year. So between 22 and 23, we are effectively celebrating the centenary of Irish stamps. I, I mentioned commemorative so these, these are the special stamps that we have from time to time uh, for particular occasions. And in the early years of the state, there was a desire to try and bring people together. We had had the War of Independence and we had had the Civil War, and the wounds from those conflicts were still very raw. So in the early years of stamp design and the selection of stamps by the government, there was a conscious decision to try and focus on things that might unify most people. And the stamps of the first generation of the people, what we call now over the last decade or so the revolutionary generation, um, there, there was an attempt to bring people together along lines that would unite. So religion was important. Roman Catholicism was important and it was um, commemorated and celebrated in various stamps at the time. Also, the culture was predominantly Gaelic and that was marked in various ways too. And of course, the nationalist revolutionary tradition was very important. So the stamps that I've just picked out here, the one in the middle is very important. That is the first commemorative stamp issued by the post office. So that's Daniel O'Connell in the middle. So that was issued for the Centenary of Catholic Emancipation in 1929, issued in three different values at the time, and clearly marking a a very important historical event within Irish history. You can see the hurler. That's for the GAA. Um, Quite a successful design at the time. The one on the other side here is the Eucharistic Congress. Um, A little less successful, but again in keeping with the desire to celebrate Ireland as an island of saints and scholars, religion, traditional values and that sort of thing. On the bottom, I've put in a couple of revolutionary ones. So the, the stamp with the volunteer outside the GPO, that was to mark 25 years of the, um, since the 1916 rebellion. But again, <clears throat> look, look at the portrayal, it's, it's a young man An idealized young man, I think, um, looking sternly resolved into the distance, holding his rifle with a bayonet, and in the background, the opening words of the proclamation. But curiously enough, the opening words of the proclamation have been translated into Irish. The proclamation that I have in the GPO on display says, In the name of the dead generations. This doesn't, it says, In Anam De Augustin, In Anam Nagluin, it's been translated. So there is a deliberate and conscious decision to present um, a version of events that perhaps is not entirely true uh, in all respects. The other one, um, that's Wolf Tone in the middle, and that is the anniversary of the 1798 rebellion. That one is is an interesting enough stamp because it's, it's designed by the descendants of German refugees, and we have been hearing quite a lot about refugees in the last couple of days here. So that's by a man called Carl Ullemann, who designed several stamps over many years for the the post office. Um, So you can see the the pike man on one side and a French ship probably heading for Bantry Bay and having to turn back again and go home. But, But within this general format of religion and culture and identity that was very traditional, there are a couple of stamps that stand out as being different. And one of these is the stamp that was issued to mark the opening of the Ardena Crusher power station. So the Department of Industry and Commerce at the time wrote to the post office and the minister and secretary said, can we have a stamp to mark the completion of this enormous project? So this this was a Siemens project um, employing 5,000 men at the time and taking up the enormous sum of 5 million Pounds out of revenue, a huge portion of the whole Irish revenue system at the time. And there was a desire, though, to show that this was a huge achievement for the young nation, that it had achieved, with um, the help of Siemens, a, a masterpiece of engineering and construction that was at the forefront of everything that was going on in the world at the time. This was the biggest engineering project for uh, for its time in, in Europe and in the world. So they were very keen to show this. So this is a different sort of Ireland. This is a new, modern, technically innovative Ireland. The man selected to do this was an uh, Irish artist called Lawrenson. And the stamp is interesting because it's, it's double format. It's, it's a bigger stamp than all the normal ones. The O'Connell ones were only half that size. But for design reasons, they decided to, to go with this one. And there was a lot of interest in this stamp as well. There were some technical difficulties at the time. But um, because not many Irish stamps were issued, there were letters coming in to the post office from all over the world saying, can you send us some of the new Shannon stamp? So one of the ones that uh, I I know happened was um, the Hawaiian Philatelic Society wrote to the Department of Post and Telegraph and said, we would be delighted to have samples of your Shannon scheme stamp for our collectors in Hawaii. So Irish stamps made their way to collectors all around the world at that time. The other little one, that's again put in with a particular nod to the Academy here. That's Rowan Hamilton, the discoverer of Quaternions, one of the most famous and brilliant Irish mathematicians and physicists. So um, that stamp is in, and it may be in a little bit because de Valera was a mathematician and was interested in mathematics, and during one of his earlier times in prison, he had diverted himself by writing the Hamiltonian equation on the walls of Kilmainham Jail. So there is a connection there between De Valera and between Hamilton and between the Academy. That particular—that's a, a first-day cover um, issued. I was talking earlier uh, about people who collect first-day covers. So that's a that's a cover on the very first day of use. Um, Hamilton, in fact, has been rather well celebrated in stamps. We had another stamp from uh, only a few years ago, and the actual formula also appears on the stamp. So he has done very well uh, as an Irish mathematician and scientist. This is just to show you how stamps were printed. They were printed in the early days in Dublin Castle. And in 1922, when we were starting to, to print our own stamps, there was a lot of debate about whether... Um, they would be printed by the government or whether they would be contracted out to commercial printers. And in the end, the government decided that they would print them themselves. So they set up, with a lot of help from the British Post Office and from the British Revenue uh, people, um, they set up a printing press in the basement under the State Apartments in Dublin Castle. And that's a photograph taken from then. And the man on the left... if you can just about see him, this man over here. He's a man called Roberts, and he had worked for the Inland Revenue and for Somerset House um, and the Royal Mint in England. He was a Scot, and he came over on loan to help set up an Irish printing operation for stamps. But he liked it, and the loan was extended, and in the end uh, he was uh, he offered the appointment, the, the job of being first director of stamping within the Irish government. And he accepted that. So Roberts is an important man in printing. He had expertise and he knew what he was doing. And that's one of the, the presses that was used at the time. But in the years after the initial flurry of interest in Irish stamps, and by the time we came to, say, the, the 1950s, Irish stamps were getting a bit tired. Printing techniques had moved on. And this little quotation I have here, are postage stamps, are generally agreed to be disgraceful which is pretty, pretty harsh criticism but that came from the director of the, of the National Gallery or former director of the National Gallery a man called Thomas Bodkin and he had been asked by the government to um, write a paper on the state of the arts in Ireland at the time so it was a wide-ranging paper but he did pay attention to stamps and that was his view of the, the state of Irish stamp production and design at the time and it was echoed you know, a decade or so later by another group from Scandinavia. The Scandinavian Design Group was brought in by the Department of Industry and Commerce at the time to look at Irish industry and Irish design. They were very thorough, and I suppose Scandinavian design had and still has a reputation for innovation and creativity and style. And they went through all the stamps that had been issued by the post office up until that period, and again discerned a lack of unity, of concentration, and a lack of single mindedness of purpose. So things were not going very well. They, they, in fact, the, that Map of Ireland stamp, they, they were very critical of the Map of Ireland stamp. They said, the map is an amorphous blob, it doesn't signify anything. We, we, aren't, we are not really working properly as we should be in design terms. They had a little bit of praise for the, the stamp for Thomas Moore. Uh, which they preferred and which was maybe a nicer stamp. So the final bit of sort of criticism emerged from the Minister of Posts and Telegraphs, Michael Hilliard, in 1963. And um, in, in a speech which was about the post office and touched on stamps, he, he said that our stamps tended, tended to give an image of a people who live too much in the dreamy past and he said he wanted stamps that would show us as a modern, progressive people. So he set up a new committee, he set up a stamp design committee charged with coming up with good designs and good ideas for stamps that would um, portray a a more innovative, modern and progressive country rather than the dreamy lot that we all were perceived of up until then. this little green stamp, again, a well-known stamp, um, that's the annals of the four masters, and that is a scribe writing away. It's quite a nice stamp, but again, perhaps a little dreamy for the minister's taste at the time. So we began to concentrate a little bit more on looking outside ourselves, looking outside Ireland for inspiration. And the, the ones I've shown here are there for a particular reason. The little blue stamp at the top, now it's still conservative in its in its treatment, um, so that, that again is, is holy year uh, with the Statue of St. Peter on it. But you will note that the designation at the bottom is no longer era. In nineteen forty nine we officially became a republic. And what it says is Publot Naheron at the bottom. So we marked our change of status to being a republic only for three years, up until nineteen fifty two. ...with the stamps coming out with Publock Neheren. Then we went back to Eire again. I think it was easier, I think for design reasons... ...it was much easier just to have Eire. But we, we dropped Pobloch Naheron. But it's again an interesting little side... ...or a little footnote on stamp design at the time. The green stamp down below. Ireland at home. You, you remember we had something called the gathering. You know the Rose of Tralee. You know all these sort of things that celebrate being Irish in various ways. On Toastal was the the start of all that. And that was an idea that was pinched from the success of the Festival of Britain in 1951, which had stamps issued for it. And we decided that we would have our own sort of Irish-themed festival called On Toastal, the pageant, the gathering, the everybody getting together sort of thing, And the stamp is designed by a a very popular artist at the time called Fergus O'Ryan, who uh, was also a graphic artist. And I think the graphic element can come out in in that particular design. So again, it's pretty simple. Harp, green, on toastal, Ireland at home. So the message is simple. If you have left our shores, particularly if you've gone to America and been successful, we want you back. Come back and visit and do things in Ireland. So that and a higher value stamp um, one in fourpence blue went round the world, promoting Ireland as really as a tourist destination and as a place to come and renew your Irishness and your roots. The other two are we, we only issued one airmail set, um, so those are special airmail stamps to fit in with airline uh, airmail rates at the time, and they 're quite clever again they, they show an, an angel the the voice of Ireland, the Vox hiberniae. And she is roving over well-known beauty spots in Ireland. So there's the Rock of Cashel, there's Loch Derrick, there's blendelock. and again we are pushing Ireland as a place, you know, of history, of mythology, of beauty. And these were the stamps that went around the world. Remember, remember how stamps really are ambassadors in some in some respect, because you have money in your pocket. When we had our own Irish currency, we had our own Irish notes very fine notes they were, but the things that really are seen beyond our shores are our stamps, and that's why they carry a message of cultural importance that goes far beyond what you might think. As stamps became more popular, people began to collect them, and there have always been collectors since the early days of stamps, and Sometimes people get very, very keen on stamps, and it even led to murder. Not, not in Ireland, as far as I know, but in Paris. One particular stamp collector, who was friendly with another dealer, he murdered him. He was missing a particular stamp from his collection. He went along to his friend one night, and the following day the body was discovered. Nothing was taken, though he had a lot of money. Gold, money, jewellery... All left. The police inspector Lestrade of the Surete was baffled. But he went along again the following week and he discovered that one stamp was missing from the man's collection. Suspicion fell on the other collector, and the detective gradually made it his business to become friendly with the other man. And eventually, after a couple of months, he said, you wouldn't have a Hawaiian two cents, would you? And the other seller said, yes, I certainly do. And he went and he found it. This was the stamp that had been stolen and for which he had murdered his friend. So stamps do have a fascination, but they also have a manic side, so we need to be careful about them. The particular um, instance I'm drawing attention to here is not murder. It's simply old-fashioned greed. That is a... This was a pyramid scheme um, in the late 1950s and early 1960s, and a man called Paul Singer came to Ireland, and he set up, through what was a respectable auctioneering firm called Shanahan's in Dunleary, he set up a stamp-dealing business and a stamp-auction business, and he was extraordinarily successful. He was a big man in all respects, exuberant, overpowering, full of life, and he persuaded people that if they only sent him their money, his, their money to, to buy stamps, he would be able to double their, uh, their money within a very short time. And hundreds of thousands flooded in from around the world. And for a brief time, Ireland became, Dublin became the centre of stamp trading, all because of this man's efforts. So he held parties, he brought in orchestras from London, he had champagne and caviar receptions, but in the end, it was a pyramid scheme entirely dependent on constant floods of new money coming in. He went to Switzerland. That's Paul Singer here, the big man on the right. Hard to see. The other old man is a, a, a tobacco magnet from Geneva uh, called Morris Burris, and he bought what was a £3 million stamp collection at the time. Lots of publicity. Brought it home to Dublin. It would soon be available for sale throughout everything. But there was a robbery. There was a robbery at his premises. The guards got involved and it soon emerged that the bookkeeping and the entries for everything were entirely false. There was a case taken against him. People began to take their money out. They wanted it all back again. He was in jail. He conducted his own defence very successfully and got off. He left immediately on the mail boat and was never heard of again. So stamps are for fun. They are not for making money. Um, As as we move towards modern times, we brought out new stamps. So this is a set designed by a German uh, Munich-based graphic designer in 1969. Again, there was a competition, uh, international competition. I have a couple of other entries from other people in the case over there. But Heinrich Gerl was the man who won this, and the theme was still Celtic, but it was a revitalised modern interpretation of Celtic. So these are the sort of animals that you would find in books here in the Academy or books in Trinity, um, you know, Book of Kells type gospels and things like that, but they have been stylized in a Celtic way. They're also new, and they have been produced by photo which is a nice, lots of colour compared with all the earlier stamps. And this this was repeated in other stamp designs at the time. Some of you may remember this. This is, I think, the biggest stamp we ever produced of um, uh, Eton College uh, stained-glass window, designed by Raymond Kine. The purple one, that's a Louis Le Brocchi stamp, very important. And it's important, too, because that was a competition to design a, a design that would be used on stamps throughout Europe. And Louis Le Brocchi won the competition, and his, I think it's called the Flaming Sun Tapestry, that was a design used on stamps throughout Europe um, in member, members who were post office members of the um, European Postal Organisation. So, as we move into modern times, we see various themes reinterpreted in modern styles. Robert Bala, that's Robert Bala's celebration of the centenary of Patrick Pierce, and he has taken the famous Delacroix painting of Liberty at the barricades, and he has put Liberty with an Irish flag outside the GPO. So we are beginning to bring in new ideas, innovative ideas, using um, all sorts of things beyond our own shores. Um, Paintings, nature, art, these were very successful stamp series. Um, There's a nice round tower there, but treated in in a a very modern style by uh, Michael Craig, well-known as, as a stamp designer. I think his father would have been a member of the Academy here who wrote the books about Dublin and things like that. And in a changing world, we must reevaluate our identity as Irish people. So take a look at these stamps. See the beautiful fashion ones, designed by Ger Garland? Very nice stamps with an embossed title at the top of them. Very fine. Martin Turner of the Irish Times, he did those sort of Celtic cats uh, during the, the boom times of the Celtic uh, tiger economy, and he decided he would do cats um, shopping and things like that. A nice little touch. And then think of, you know, back to 1922, 1932, 1942, would we ever have issued stamps for, for pride, for broad? I, I don't think so. So our vision of ourselves and the way we want to portray ourselves has changed a lot over the past century an inclusive society modern street art that's the other one in the middle these are the themes that represent Irish stamps today but there's also there's also a commercial imperative the post office is no longer a civil service organization it's still a state-run organization but it is there to make a bit of money as well and stamps have become in some respects collectible items and the themes that are chosen for stamps sometimes will represent what can be sold. You too, clearly, is, will, be, will be sold. Remember Father Ted? That money was just resting in my account. Very, very popular. Perhaps not deserving of stamping the old definition of what should be on stamps, but that's Father Ted. Irish breakfasts at the top right. Again, perhaps I, I have my doubts about Irish breakfast as a stamp theme, but it's there. And the one at the middle, you see the man in the middle... Super Mario. Now, you didn't know he was related to the Marios of Glasnevin, did you? But, so why is Super Mario on the stamp? I, I don't know. But he's popular. He's popular. And as we face an uncertain future, I took out a little book that I have at home called The Young Stamp Collectors. Um, Rosamund Prager, um, sister of the man who was, uh, again, president of the Academy, I think, here, uh, Robert Lloyd Prager, um, she wrote a nice little book, about the stamp collectors, children who were bored, but they were infected by stamp microbes that got into their brain and they travelled round the world and they went to the Silly Isles, as she calls them, the S-I-L-L-Y, and she has nice little pictures of stamps from all sorts of imaginary places around the world. This is It it was only produced maybe 40 years ago, but it was written uh, back in about 1910, at a time when stamp collecting was probably at its height. So that, that and then a, a very nice old-fashioned stamp album at the bottom, that's the sort of thing that um, we, we can still treasure uh, in our stamp collections. As for the uncertain future, you will know that you can now buy a digital stamp. You don't have to get a stamp, lick it, and put it down on the top right-hand corner. You can get your phone and you can download our app. And for this, you will pay a privilege of extra money Um, but then you just get a little note of letters and numbers that you write in the top right-hand corner, and it'll be scanned and read by our machines. I don't like it. It's it's not proper stamps. But of one thing I will be sure, that a big firm like Guinness, which has been commemorated with exactly the same portrait on stamps on uh, the 200th and 250th anniversary of the uh, mighty brewing firm, um, it will no doubt be able to have G-U-I-N-N-E-S-S stroke 300 written somehow or other in the top right hand corner and it will go on preserving things. But at the end of the day, the message for all of us as stamp collectors and those interested in Irish culture is don't worry, be happy, no be bored Thank you very much.